Well, good morning, Redemption Tempe. <clears throat> Why, you guys are so much better at that than the 9 a.m. Uh, let me just say that. My name is Will Vakurvich. I'm one of the pastors here and uh, excited to enter into God's Word with you this morning. We'll be spending a short amount of time in the Luke passage that you just heard read, and then uh, most of our time will be focused in the book of John. So if you have your Bibles, it's a perfect time to take them out. If not, go ahead and raise your hand, and one of our ushers will get a, a Bible to you. <clears throat> if you don't own a copy of God's Word, then consider this our gift to you. Uh, we would love for you to, to take this Bible home and grow in your knowledge and understanding of who God is by reading His Word. So... As you guys heard from the scripture reading, uh, we're going to be talking about, about who is the greatest, about leadership, about humility. So um, I decided, maybe against my better judgment, that the best way to, to intro would be to tell some of my more humiliating stories. I don't know why I did that, but that's what I have prepared so you guys get to hear. Uh, it all started the summer between eighth grade and my freshman year of high school which for those of you who have lived through that time, you know how like confident and self-assured and not awkward you are. <clears throat> and so if you can visualize a younger me, a lot more hair, and I was, uh, I was still this height, believe it or not, but I was actually, I just did the math, I was 63 pounds lighter. Uh, so I was huge, clearly. Um, but I decided I want to play football. And so... I knew if I was going to play football uh, that I had, to, I had to work out. I had to try to put on some muscle. I wasn't successful. But what I did do is um, I would go with my dad down to the local YMCA, and we would start, you know, pumping the iron, right? We'd start working out. And during that summer there, uh, a very special thing happened in my young, young life. I fell in love. I fell in love with the lifeguard. Her name was Kendra. She was older than me. She was beautiful. And every day that I would go to the Y to work out, I would do this awesome thing where I'd like walk by, <laughs> but not say anything because I was scared. And she would look at me. And in my 14-year-old mind, I knew the way she was looking at me was like, I love you too, baby. <laughs> now that I'm a little bit older, I think she was like, that kid is a creep. What is wrong with him? But so every day during the summer, I'd go to work out, and I would work up the courage, and I knew, like, there was going to be, you know, like, like in the 80s movie, right, like, where the boy is, like, in love with the girl, and then the thing happens, and then they can fall in love, and then they slow dance, right, with the, like, disco ball. I knew that was going to happen. I was just waiting, like, what's the thing going to be? So I was convinced she would see me, you know, like, bench pressing the bar with, with no weight on it. <laughs> And be like wooed or something, but uh, over the summer, like week in and week out, she somehow was able to resist my like awkward looks as I <laughs> strutted by. And so high school started, and it was my freshman year, huge, giant high school, public school in California. Um, I didn't know a ton of people. I had my group of friends from junior high, but um, I was excited. And I walked in to my first period class. It was freshman biology. And guess who was there? Kendra. But she wasn't in freshman biology. She was a TA. She was a senior. So she saw me walk in, and we caught eyes. It was like magic from across the room. And I'm thinking, this is the thing, right? This is where, like, the love starts. And she looked, and I could tell, like, 
she recognized me. And I could see by the look on her face, she was going to talk to me. And I'm like, this is it. This is the moment I've been waiting for. And she goes, you're a freshman? Ew. I was like, I'm not, I just sit in the freshman class. I'm not really, I don't, I, yes, I'm a freshman. <laughs> so that should have been my first clue, that maybe she wasn't interested in me. Um, but I, I was persistent, and so I would try to, like, talk. I wouldn't really try to talk to her. I would just still do the awkward walk-by thing. But I, I, I was looking for opportunities. And so my freshman biology teacher, in all of his wisdom, uh, during one of his lectures, decided to call a volunteer up to help him demonstrate something. So <clears throat> I thought I would be brave, and I was like, yes, I'll help you demonstrate. He decided to choose a 14-year-old boy to demonstrate, help him with this presentation on how cells reproduce. <laughs> he chose an immature 14-year-old boy in front of a group of his peers with all seriousness to help him demonstrate how cells reproduce. This is not gonna end well, you guys can already tell. So he's going through like chromosomes and all the other things that I forgot, and he gives me these two socks to demonstrate chromosomes that are gonna reproduce. Now, I took it upon myself to add a little comedy and humor to his presentation by doing some um, inappropriate hand gestures about what chromosomes could look like reproducing, which I will not do here. Because I've learned and I've grown in, in my wisdom a little bit. And uh, <clears throat> the class thought it was hilarious. Mr. Evans, my biology teacher, not so much. So while my class thought it was really funny, their response was to laugh. My teacher's response was to call my dad at work to schedule a meeting for right after school. <laughs> so that's not good. Uh, what you need to know as far as backstory with my dad, my dad actually works, worked for the school district. He was director of maintenance and operations for the school district. So when I got a call from, or more, when my parents got a call to go down to the school, it wasn't like you leave your job that's different and now you go to the school. Like my dad works at the school. He works for the school district. So he's not just embarrassed because his son's teacher is telling him the dumb thing his son did. This is like a colleague. So my dad's super creative. Uh, and, and he was a good steward of his job, so he decided the best punishment for me would be to talk with the maintenance staff at my high school and arrange that for two weeks, every day, after school, for two hours, I got to clean all the bathrooms of my high school. So not like after school, like 30 minutes after everyone stopped hanging out and went home, they're like, when the bell rang, I went straight to the restroom to start cleaning. And I think it was on day two when I uh, knocked on the door of the girl's restroom, asked if anyone was in there. I came to clean it. No one said anything. So I went in when Kendra <laughs> walked out of the stall. You remember Kendra, the girl that was like, you're a freshman, ew? Yeah, this time she said, you clean toilets? Ew. And at that moment, I realized she's probably not the one for me. <laughs> so there's um, a whole host of other humiliating stories that I could share. That's just the one because uh, it ended well. I got to meet my, my wife, and she was, like, much better than Kendra, trust me. She totally deals with all of my weirdness way better than just saying you all the time, which I appreciate. <clears throat> but this, 
kind of humiliation isn't what we see Jesus describe or what we'll see Jesus embody in the stories that we'll look at today. Uh, What I experienced and what lots of us have experienced, some of us over and over again, is like we're being proud and arrogant and God or our dads or somebody puts us in a position of humility to learn a lesson. What we see Jesus do, what we will see him do in these stories is Jesus willingly will put himself in a position of humiliation for the benefit of others. So my dad humbled me by making me scrub toilets for for my own good. Jesus willingly put himself in the lower place for our own good. Does that make sense? So we're going to start in the book of Luke, Luke chapter 22, and we'll be here quickly just to set the context um, of, of what's going on. Luke just as John will, has been chronicling Jesus' life, telling the early church what his life was like. And and these stories in the gospel are all pointing towards what's going to happen. What's the end going to be? Is Jesus is who he said he was? How are we going to see this story unfold? And so we're getting towards the end of the story here. (coughs) Excuse me. And we are in the portion of the story known as like the Last Supper. So this is Jesus' final moments with his disciples, the the guys that have followed him around for the last three years, learning from him, um, watching him perform miracles, uh, being his students. These are the last moments. And so in the midst of these last moments, we see his disciples in this intimate dinner in chapter 22 have an argument. Like, this is horrible timing, guys. Do you not realize this is going to be Jesus' last moments with you? And they start arguing. We'll pick up in verse 24. Luke twenty-two twenty-four 24 says this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. The disciples that Jesus literally rebukes and says, get behind me, Satan. Right? The disciples that are like, no, shoo the children away. And Jesus is like, what is your problem? Bring the children to me. Do you guys not get this? The disciples that like when Jesus is in the boat and there's the storm and they're like, what are we going to do? And he's like, you have such little faith. You guys, do you not know who I am? Like, calm, storm. These same disciples when there's 5,000 people who are listening to Jesus preach and they're like, we don't have any food. And Jesus is like, how long have you been with me? Here, bread, fish, feed the people. Come on, disciples. These disciples are arguing about which of them is the greatest at Jesus' last meal. So all of them have said Jesus is the Messiah, the promised one from God, who God sent to rescue the world from sin, God in the flesh in front of that guy. They're arguing amongst themselves about who's the greatest. Sounds like me my freshman year of high school. Jesus says... The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who reclines at table, or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Notice what Jesus doesn't do. Jesus doesn't say, I'm God, you dummies. None of you are the greatest. I am the greatest. (laughs) Jesus doesn't even say, you're wrong 
for talking about who would be the greatest. What Jesus does is he invites them into a whole new way to view who is the greatest, who has power, what does leadership look like, what do we do with the blessings and the statuses and the privileges, all the good things that we have. And he says, oh, okay, if you want to be the greatest, then be like the youngest. We have to hear be like the youngest, not through our lens where we elevate kids and we think they're like, God's greatest gift, and we buy them all the toys and all the junk that we end up throwing away later. No, not like that, not an elevated view of children and how cute they are. This is like an ancient Near Eastern view where they are literally a drain of resources until they are old enough to contribute to the family. You have to work constantly to keep them alive. They just eat things and make messes, and they're not contributing anyway, in any way financially, preparing food. They're just eating the food and making dirty dishes. We can kind of relate to that if we're parents, now that I'm hearing it out loud. So this is not like, oh, be like, like our idea of a pure little child. No, what Jesus is saying is if you want to be great, then you need to understand that you are a drain on resources, that you have nothing to contribute. You have to be the weakest among everyone else. Why would Jesus say that? That is, that is strange. If you want to be powerful, be weak. If you want to be great, be the least. If you want to be strong, then show your inadequacies. So keep this little dinner exchange over this meal in mind, and we're going to flip a few pages to the right in the book of John. And this is where we'll spend the bulk of our time. <clears throat> John is also <coughs> excuse me, recording the same meal the same interaction, and we can tell by the way that John writes that he's slowing down his pace of storytelling. He's drawing our attention in. So think about like if this is a movie, he's going like shot by shot, slowing down, drawing our attention to the small details. So let's see how John describes this. He sets the stage. Now before the feast of the Passover in John chapter 13, so before the largest feast in the Jewish community, when Jewish people from all over would travel back to Jerusalem to be near the temple for this celebration, so when there's a ton of people around, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, so from the beginning of John's gospel, we see Jesus consistently telling his followers, my hour has not yet come. I don't want to do too many miracles. My hour has not yet come. My time has not yet come. Jesus is building anticipation, and John is building anticipation in this story that an hour will come. A, a climax to the story will come. And the first 13 chapters, we see Jesus saying, not yet. It's not time yet. It's not time yet. My hour has not yet come. The tension is building. The anticipation is building. And now we see when all the Jewish people are together in Jerusalem at this festival of the Passover, Jesus uh, John lets us know that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, or he loved them completely. So the stage is set. We've been building anticipation to this hour, and now we see at this hour, Jesus is thinking of his disciples in the world, who he loves, the ones that he had loved fully, completely to the end. So at this moment, 
what is Jesus going to do? Think of like, you know, this is, this is the president's final public address before the new president's inauguration. This is like those final sacred deathbed moments of someone in hospice when you know there's not much time left. What is most important to communicate? Think back, this is the long distance relationship on, on the drive to the airport. You only have a few moments left. What are you gonna say? What are you gonna communicate? How are you gonna demonstrate your love in this moment? To add a layer on top of this, John tells us, during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, so one of the 12 has already been influenced by the, by the devil to betray Jesus, so that Jesus would be arrested, tortured, and killed, Jesus being aware of this, he still, um, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going back to God. So we have Judas over here, influenced by the devil, plotting to kill Jesus. We have Jesus knowing who he is, knowing his identity that he came from God, that he's going back to God, that God has put all things in his hands. Can you feel like this anticipation building of what is Jesus going to do? What is he going to do in the midst of the Passover? The hour has come. The disciples that he loves are here. The time is short. All things are put into his hands. All authority on heaven and earth. He is in control. He is God in the flesh. The final moments have arrived. What will Jesus do? He rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And it's like, wait, did you skip a few lines? Like, where's the great sermon? Where's the great, like, this is what, the, the final manifesto? Where, where is the most incredible miracle? Where's the thing no one expected Jesus to be able to do? Like, where, where are those things? Where's, like, the confrontation, right? Like, every great movie has, like, the final showdown between the bad guy and the good guy and the battle scene. Like, there's no battle scene. Jesus gets up. He takes his outer clothes off. He wraps a servant's towel around his waist and he begins to wash the feet of his disciples, of his students, of his followers. We have to put ourselves back in their context. See, we have great, wonderful inventions called uh, socks and shoes, which I appreciate daily. Some of you guys, not so much. But socks and shoes help us keep our feet um, dry, clean. We live in a similar climate, right? It's hot, it's dusty in Arizona, just like it was in Israel in the time. But they were walking around either barefoot or in sandals. So I'm assuming you guys are good at math. If you take sweaty feet <laughs> with dusty roads on which animals walk and do other things, uh, and you combine those, it's going to make for pretty disgusting feet. So when a dinner would be hosted, there would be these low tables 
and the guests would recline at the table. They would prop themselves up on one elbow with their feet pointing away from the food and other people's noses just for logistics sake, right? So a good host would provide a, a basin of water and a towel so that the people coming to the meal could wash their feet. If you were a wealthy host and, and, and well, well off financially, you would provide a servant to wash your guests' feet, to honor them. But it would not be like someone from your household, it would be a slave. And if you were Jewish, it, it wouldn't even be a Jewish slave or servant, it would be a Gentile, because this is the lowest thing that you can ask someone to do. Now, in this context, there were very, very few rare exceptions to this. And what this would look like would be somebody that did have a position of authority would willingly say, I will wash one of my guests' feet. And when this happened, it was scandalous because the implication was that a free person was willingly putting themselves in a position of subservience or slavery to the one whose feet they were washing. They were saying, I'm willingly giving up my freedom to serve and bond myself to you. Now, when we take the context of Jesus, God in the flesh, whose hour has finally come, who has loved his disciples completely, putting himself in this position, we can't help but respond to this. The promised Messiah is taking off his outer garments, exposing himself to his disciples, wrapping the towel around his waist, kneeling down onto the floor. You cannot wash someone else's feet standing up. You have to kneel. You have to posture yourself in a position of humility and service. You have to move in close. Foot washing requires intimacy by nature of what it is. It requires vulnerability. You're moving into an area that stinks, that needs attention and care. And Jesus, whose hour has finally come, positions himself at his disciples' stinky feet. And he begins washing, wiping, drying. And as we read through the biblical story from start to finish, it shouldn't surprise us. Because from the very beginning, when God creates Adam and Eve in the garden, it says that God stooped low and formed them out of the dust or the dirt of the garden. God has always been willing to stoop low, to move in close to humanity, to get some dirt under his fingernails as he pursues us in relationship. And then it says that God breathed life into them. This image of mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation almost a kiss of life that ignites humanity from this dirt, that brings forth true life from the dust of the garden. We see this image throughout as God moves close to his people in their brokenness, in their hurt, in their sin. This God who forgives, this God who sends his prophets to remind his people there's brokenness here, repent. This God who provides for them in their wilderness wanderings. Throughout scripture, we see a God who moves close to people, 
who pursues them in relationship to bring life from the midst of our dirtiness, the midst of our brokenness, the midst of our sin, God is moving close to cleanse us and to breathe life into us. And so what else would Jesus do when his hour has come? But move close. Take our dirtiness upon himself. Breathe new life into our understanding of what the world is and how it works. And we see him repeat this throughout the, the, the final chapters of John, the same image, the same motif. So Jesus, from a posture of sacrificial love, washes the disciples' feet. And then Jesus says, when you guys meet together, take bread and break it, because that is my body given for you in sacrificial love. And take the cup and drink it, because this is my blood shed for you in sacrificial love, so that God can move close to us, we can move close to God. And then we see Jesus allow himself to get arrested, sacrificially loving us. And we see Jesus willingly allow himself to be taken to the cross and crucified and die for us, another image of sacrificial love. We see it over and over. It's like he realizes it's going to take a while for it to sink in, so he gives us these different images of God's self-giving, sacrificial love poured out for us. Paul describes it uh, like this in Philippians chapter 2. This is, a, a lot of scholars believe this was one of the earliest hymns that the church would sing to one another. This is how Paul describes Jesus' sacrificial love. He tells his readers, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, poured himself out, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This understanding of the sacrificial, loving nature of who God is, we see shaping the church's identity from early on. This is one of the first hymns that early believers would be singing back and forth to one another. This is the God we serve, who took the form of a servant, who emptied himself out. And if you read in the book of Acts, this is why we see the early church causing such an uproar, because they are pouring themselves out for their neighbors, because they are loving their neighbors, because they are preaching the word of God faithfully and embodying their faith. And the people around them cannot help but notice, because it's so different. It's so countercultural. This is not how we would typically respond. And we see Jesus continue to flip these power dynamics on, on their head. One of the things that theologians talk about is the kingdom of Jesus is an upside-down kingdom. Upside-down, meaning the first will be last. The greatest will be the least. And we see this demonstrated over and over. So, uh, if we skip down a ways, Jesus tries to wash... Simon's feet, and, and he has a really awkward response, like, no, Lord, don't wash my feet. And Jesus is like, no, I need to wash your feet. He's like, okay, then wash all of me. And Jesus is like, that's a little weird. I'm not going to wash all of you right now. Uh, let's just do the feet and move on. And so we get down to verse 12. When he, when Jesus, had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, 
Do you understand what I have done for you? I don't think they do. I don't think we do either. I don't think our minds are capable of understanding the fullness of God, allowing himself to be born in flesh, taking the nature of a servant and washing our feet. But do you remember like when you're a kid and there's those things your parents would tell you over and over and over? And then like as you get older, maybe when you become a parent, you're like, oh, I see what you did there. Now, now I get it. This is one of those things at the time, they probably didn't get it. Post-resurrection, they probably got it a little bit more. Spending some years walking faithfully with Jesus, they probably started to get it more and more and more. These lessons of humility seem to take time to marinate deep into who we are. It seems to take some faithful, consistent obedience to start to understand how this takes shape in our lives. Humility like this, like Jesus demonstrates, doesn't come easily or quickly or cheaply, but unfortunately, that's how we desire most things. Quick, easy, and cheap. So Jesus, almost calling greater attention as if they didn't notice what he did, do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. So Jesus is saying a couple things. A servant's not greater than his master. If I'm your master, if you call me your master, if you call yourself a Christian, and I'm stooping down and washing the disciples' feet, you're not greater than me. There's an implication here. Jesus says it. So now you wash one another's feet. But notice the system that he sets up. If I was writing this from my perspective, what I would say is, Jesus finishes washing the disciples' feet. He says to them, do you understand what I've done for you? They don't. Then he says, because I have washed your feet, now you wash my feet. This is how the world operates. This is how we do things. This is how I expect things to be done. I do something nice for you, you do something nice for me. It's this back and forth, tit for tat, right? We keep track of how many nice things people have done for us, and that determines whether we like them or not. And if it's not that many nice things, we don't really like them that much. Am I the only one that does this? <laughs> Jesus does not structure his people in this way. Jesus understands he's forming a community of worshipers. If Jesus had said, I wash your feet, now you wash my feet, that means our brothers and sisters in Christ are obstacles that we have to overcome to worship because we're all jockeying for position to wash Jesus' feet. Jesus doesn't send his people out like that. He bonds them together with this unique dynamic. He says, because I have washed your feet, which implies should elicit a response in response to this incredible, humble act of sacrificial love um, that Jesus has displayed, now you wash one another's feet. We demonstrate our love for Jesus in the way that we love his people. We worship through sacrificial love. 
Whether it's worship through singing, giving, service to one another, all of it should have a sacrificial loving component for the sake of the other. So, what I have observed in my own life is um, leading our, our outward-focused engagements in the city and, and globally, <clears throat> there tends to be two types of people. The people who hear this message and they think, yeah, somebody should do something. I'm so glad I go to a church that does a lot of really great stuff. Don't we have a, par a block party? I'm glad somebody's gonna do that. And you feel really, really good about all the great things that somebody else is gonna do. If you hear this and you're like, man, I'm so glad other people are washing feet, you need to wash feet. You need to humble yourself. You need to understand what God has done for you and understand that the response is sacrificially loving other people. Outside of your comfort zone, it's gonna be messy and stinky and funky and it's not gonna be fun, but it's gonna be so good for you, I promise. Okay. That's the typical route that this sermon goes, right? We hear this, Jesus washed our feet, now we wash other people's feet. The thing that I cannot get away from, that the Spirit has just been pressing upon me over the last few weeks as I've been preparing is the other side of that dynamic. So myself and a lot of people I know hear this message and we think, oh my goodness, I have to do more. I have to serve more. Jesus did so much, I owe him so much, I have to be more obedient, I have to be more giving, I have to be more sacrificial, I have to make sure that all of this stuff gets done. The reality is, if we are called in response to Jesus washing our feet to wash one another's feet, sometimes I'm a foot washer. And sometimes I have to allow my brothers and sisters to wash my own feet. And if I'm honest, what I realize is that I get my identity from what I can do for other people, not who I am in Christ. That is idolatry. If I'm honest, I realize that I feel my worth and value connected to how I can serve and what I can contribute and how much I can earn and give and do, not in who I am in Jesus. We cannot live this commandment out in faithful obedience if we're not being vulnerable with one another. If we're not taking the time to say, I, I see this need, please allow me to serve you. And yes, you may serve me. Because here's the deal, guys, we're horrible saviors. Only Jesus can do all of it. I don't know if you figured that out yet, but it's true. We cannot do it all on our own as much as we want to, as much as we believe we can. We can't, we're insufficient. Ask my wife, I need help. And when I act like I don't, that's not good. I like to wash feet because guess what? I'm in control. I get to decide how I do it, when I do it, where I do it, whose feet I wash. I get to keep my feet covered. And I get to see someone else's vulnerability. But when I'm honest, when I'm really honest, then I have to admit, I can't do it on my own. I can't do it in isolation. I need people around me. I need to be humble enough to allow them to see my stinky feet, to get close to me. I can't rob them of that joy of fulfilling a commandment of Jesus. But we have to do this in community. 
So this is going to look different for each of us. For some of us, this is just like, you know, Jesus saying, hey, you need to serve. Like, sign up for something. I can help you with all that. We have plenty of opportunities. Children's ministry always needs volunteers. Suzanne's in the back. Talk to her. <clears throat> we have a vlog party coming up. Love for you to invite your friends who don't come to church yet to come hang out. There's plenty of opportunities to serve. That's easy. But, but this other part, well, this requires some vulnerability. So maybe the step for you is sign up for DNA. Start to get connected. You've been around. You know you like it. Ricardo's funny, right? You guys keep coming back. Get connected. Take that step. Don't be scared. We're not that weird. Maybe you've done DNA, but you haven't really gotten into a community. We can help with that. We can help get you around brothers and sisters in Christ who would love to wash your feet and have their feet washed, whether they know it or not. Maybe you're in a community and you're just like the periphery. And you can check the box that says, I'm in community, I'm doing enough, but you're not really showing how stinky your feet are. You're not really talking about the things that have been weighing on your soul. The things you have been asking God to help alleviate that burden, but you won't let anyone alleviate that burden. Maybe it's time to talk to a brother and sister in Christ about what's really going on. You see, what Jesus does here is he levels the playing field because we're all called to serve. And we're all called to allow others to serve us. As counterintuitive as that feels in our driven, success-oriented culture, we're insufficient. But we have this beautiful picture of Jesus who stoops low. He wraps this towel around himself, this towel that he uses to wash and to dry the feet, this towel that absorbs the dirty water off of the disciples' feet, just in the same way his life, death, and resurrection absorbs our sins. This Jesus who gives himself for us, willingly gives his body, not just in foot washing, but in crucifixion. And in resurrection, that just like the water washes the disciples' feet clean, so through the resurrection, we have new life. We are made new in Christ, adopted into his family, a family of foot washers, a family with intention and purpose and mission to go not only wash the feet of the world, but be vulnerable with one another, be honest with one another, in the areas that we need each other and the spirit to wash our dirty souls as well. Jesus is modeling a new way, not a typical power structure. This new power structure says the more leadership and power and authority you have, the more feet there are to wash. It's this upside down kingdom which on the surface may not make sense. I think when we listen and sit in it, it's good news for our weary souls, no pun intended. So now would you guys, yeah, you got it. So now would you guys pray with me? We're gonna pray, um, we're gonna pray for the spirit of Jesus because we need him, because there are layers to this. There's areas that we need to serve and there's areas that we need to let go and be served. And I don't know how to do that. 
So I don't think we can do anything but pray. So I'll pray, the band will come up, and then one of the guys will lead us in a time of response. <coughs> Father, we thank you that you're here, that you listen, that you are constantly moving close to us. We thank you that you are present in the areas that we have dealt with and in the areas that we have not dealt with. We thank you that you're not afraid to be close to our areas of dirtiness, of brokenness, of guilt and shame and burdens. Father, when we're honest, we all long for relief from those things. We long to be washed clean, to be unashamed, to be vulnerable without fear. And we thank you that you are a good father, our perfect father. You don't have to feel fear and guilt and shame in front of you, but that you desire to bring healing and wholeness. So would you send your spirit to speak to us? Bring to light the areas that need healing. Bring to light the areas that need conviction, where we need to wash feet, we need to serve, we need to respond in obedience. But bring to light the areas that we cannot seem to relinquish control. We thank you that you're good, and we thank you that you are gentle with us. We ask during this time of response that you would be gentle with us. Draw us closer to you. We love you, Jesus. Help us to love you more. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.